Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Recent studies suggest that risperidone long-acting injection may be considered for controlling mood episodes in patients with bipolar disorder who have relapsed due to medication non-adherence or failure to respond to standard therapies. Currently, no study has reported the usefulness of risperidone long-acting injection in youth with bipolar disorder. The authors observed 19 children and adolescents with early-onset bipolar disorder receiving risperidone long-acting injection at an outpatient clinic in this six-month naturalistic study. Clinical response was evaluated using the Children's Global Assessment Scale and the Clinical Global Impression Scale at baseline, 8 weeks, and 24 weeks. Patients who received risperidone long-acting injection presented considerable improvement in global functioning and clinical severity. There were no significant changes in laboratory measurements and weight throughout follow-up. The authors conclude that risperidone long-acting injection is efficient, well-tolerated, and safe in youths with bipolar disorder who failed to respond to prior medication trials or who have adherence problems. Further blind, randomized, controlled studies are necessary to confirm these initial findings. This study was partially funded by the Sao Paulo Research Support Foundation and the University of Sao Paulo, Sao Paulo, Brazil. Patients with mental illness can die up to 25 years sooner than patients without mental illness. Reasons for this disparity include accidents, lack of self-care, violence, and suicide. There is also advanced risk due to poverty, smoking, and lack of exercise. However, less attention has been directed toward medical disorders that accompany psychiatric illness, many of which may be attributed to side effects from psychotropic medications, such as weight gain, prediabetes, and dyslipidemia. Thus, while the psychiatric patient may have many risk factors for premorbidity, it is not clear that our care systems identify this risk or work assertively with patients to modify it. In this study, Linzer and colleagues sought to determine if undetected cardiovascular disease might be present in patients with psychiatric disorders. They studied 96 patients who attended a psychiatric day treatment program at a hospital in Minnesota. 37 patients had electrocardiograms performed for clinical reasons. Of these 37 patients, 20 had abnormal electrocardiograms, 7 had borderline findings, and 10 had normal electrocardiograms. The most common abnormalities were conduction disorders and evidence of prior heart attacks. While the study was limited by the small number of participants, the findings suggest that psychiatric patients may be at risk for electrocardiogram abnormalities. 
the role that these abnormalities play in adverse cardiac outcomes for psychiatric patients, and the true prevalence of these findings in the day treatment population remain to be determined in larger studies in multiple settings. This project was supported by a grant from UCARE. Major depressive disorder and obesity are two important public health problems that frequently co-occur, but little is known about the treatment of individuals with both conditions. In this study, 25 overweight or obese women with major depressive disorder received up to 24 weeks of open-label treatment with a combination of 32 milligrams per day of naltrexone sustained release and 360 milligrams per day of bupropion sustained release along with dietary and behavioral counseling. Depressive symptom scores, which were evaluated with the Montgomery Asberg Depression Rating Scale, showed significant reductions at weeks 12 and 24. Mean weight continued to decline over the 24-week course of treatment, and ratings of binge eating behavior and food craving were also significantly improved. The safety and tolerability profile of the naltrexone and bupropion combination was consistent with its individual components. In summary, 24 weeks of open-label combination therapy with naltrexone and bupropion, along with dietary and behavioral counseling, improved depressive symptoms and reduced body weight in overweight or obese women with major depressive disorder. This study was funded by Orexigen Therapeutics. Depression impacts all facets of people's lives, including the workplace, and evidence shows that cognitive difficulties are a common component of major depressive disorder. However, the evidence is somewhat vague in terms of a correlation between cognitive difficulties and reduced job performance. Individuals with depression may have a loss of energy, difficulty concentrating, and irritability. In the workplace, these symptoms may translate into reduced productivity, increased work errors or risk of injury, reduced time management skills, interpersonal difficulties, and an inability to cope with stressful situations. Lawrence and colleagues conducted a survey to evaluate the relationship between the severity of depressive symptoms and self-perceived cognitive difficulties among an employed population with self-reported depression. They found that cognitive dysfunction was perceived to be worse for individuals with more severe depressive symptoms. The deficits were more pronounced in tasks requiring organizational skills or those requiring increased concentration. The authors emphasize that it is important to recognize the link between depression and reduced work performance in order to assist these employees in the future. Further investigation will be important to delve deeper into the liability of depression and to look at potential avenues for improvement. This study was funded by Takeda and H. Lundbeck, A.S. Despite high rates and increased risk of mortality, delirium remains underdiagnosed and is given minimal focus within formal medical education. 
In this study, Beach and colleagues conducted a set of surveys aimed at assessing the attitudes and beliefs of critical care providers regarding delirium. The surveys consisted of 12 statements regarding delirium, some knowledge-based and others opinion-based, which respondents were asked to rate on a 1 to 5 scale from strongly disagree to strongly agree. Responder groups included critical care nurses and internal medicine and psychiatry residents. Following the initial survey, a fourth-year psychiatry resident served as a weekly liaison in the medical intensive care unit for nine months, participating actively in walk-rounds and giving impromptu mini-talks on various psychiatric topics. This liaison intervention was intended to influence the perceptions of critical care staff regarding various psychiatric topics, including delirium. Following the liaison intervention, a second identical survey was conducted. In comparing the results of the pre-surveys and post-surveys, there were no statistically significant differences for any item when all respondents were examined together, nor were there any differences when the internal medicine and psychiatry resident groups were examined separately. Critical care nurses were less likely to agree that delirium was underdiagnosed on the post-survey, perhaps reflecting an increase in diagnosis of delirium cases during the study period, and were more likely to agree that patients with new onset anxiety or depression in the intensive care unit most commonly have delirium. Although this intervention was well-received by clinical staff, it was not sufficient to meaningfully affect the attitudes and beliefs of trainees and nurses regarding delirium. The authors suggest that robust and lasting changes in attitudes regarding delirium might require more intensive efforts involving longer intervention periods, greater rounding frequency, or additional didactic teaching. In this issue's rounds from the general hospital, Read the case of Mr. A, a 25-year-old man who was brought to the emergency department by police after he was found running along train tracks and instigating fights with transit authorities. He was confused, diaphoretic, and warm to the touch. Although no identification was found on his person, police did find a pipe and an unlabeled packet with a substance in it that Mr. A admitted to using, he identified it as bath salts. If you have ever been uncertain about how best to handle aberrations in vital signs, laboratory results, behavior, and cognition, or have been challenged by how to initiate safe and effective treatment in patients with confusing signs and symptoms, then this case will provide guidance. When patients are distressed, they often seek to attribute their concern to a physical cause, and patients may worry about imagined conditions in addition to their physiologically based symptoms. Depression can be the byproduct of worry. When the patient is also a physician, arbitrary inferences related to explaining problems are an all-too-common finding. In this issue's psychotherapy casebook, we present the case of Dr. A, a 75-year-old veteran and retired physician with bladder cancer. 
Visit primarycarecompanion.com to read how the author encouraged Dr. A to suspend the inferencing process and switch from the role of healer to that of one being healed. We invite you to engage online in an interactive CME case study from the Banner Alzheimer's Institute. The Banner Alzheimer's Institute case conference is a weekly event in which physicians and staff discuss challenging cases of patients seen at the Institute's Stead Family Memory Clinic. In this issue of The Companion, we highlight the case of Mr. A., a 57-year-old man with rapidly worsening limb dexterity, including involuntary limb jerks and difficulty with short-term memory. He is misplacing items and word-finding difficulty as affecting his speech. He is able to recognize friends and family, but unable to perform personal finances. His wife recently asked him to stop driving due to safety concerns. Does this patient have encephalitis? prion disease or Lewy body dementia? Could he have frontotemporal dementia? Visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to answer questions about this patient case and find out how your colleagues who attended the weekly case conference responded in this instructive offering. In this issue of The Companion, we also examine a case of cocaine-induced myopathy as well as risk factors for hypovitaminosis D in elderly psychiatric patients. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com for new postings, including case reports, the opportunity for continuing medical education credit, and special web-based interactive content. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS Soundbites.